0: Welcome to the Shepherds Crook podcast. The Shepherds Crook exists to provide care, counsel, and resources for pastors. You can get more information at shepherdscrook.co. My name is Jared Sparks, and I'm a pastor coming alongside other pastors, reminding them of the chief pastor. Welcome to the Shepherds Crook podcast. I'm excited to be interviewing a man that I've learned, I guess, a lot from a distance from and. It is Pastor C.R. Wiley. Chris, how are you doing today?
1: Hey, I'm well, Jared. How are you?
0: I'm doing good. I'm doing really good. Let's let's pray and and get into some questions here. I got a lot here for you, and I think you'll be able to help us out, so let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this time. I ask that you would lead this discussion. I uh, thank you for Pastor Chris, all you've done in and through him, and I just ask that this would be a time that would be encouraging to those who are listening and you would challenge them and and ultimately, uh, Heavenly Father, I pray you'd point us to your son, Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit, do that. Just shine a spotlight on Jesus. I trust that, trust that you will. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. For those who may not be familiar with you, would you tell us a little bit about yourself, your family, and then what it is that you do?
1: Well, I'm a, I'm a pastor in Connecticut. I am the pastor of the Presbyterian church of Manchester. And, uh, been there a little over a decade at that church, and I've got uh, a wife and three grown children. So my, uh, my oldest son is married to a lovely girl, and they live in Nashville, Tennessee, and then my second son just got married here about a week or so ago, and they live right in our area, and then my daughter is a sophomore in college at Grove City College, so that's a little snippet uh, in terms yeah. of you know, who I am and my family. And uh, I don't know if you want me to get into anything in greater detail at this point, but I, I'm a writer. Um, I've written, oh, since the early 90s. Uh, I think I've got seven, eight books. But uh, the two that are, you know, the three that are in circulation right now are the ones that most people are familiar with. I kind of took a hiatus from writing for a while and got back into it about oh, five or six years ago after stepping away from it for 10 Fifteen years, so okay. anyway, so that that's a little bit about me
0: okay so if if this interview people are thinking, boy, this guy's cool where where can they go to find more about your podcast your books and and all that kind of stuff
1: Well yeah, uh the books are easy to, to locate I mean you know Amazon yeah. has everything <laughs> so you find stuff there uh, and it's c r Wiley the reason why I go by c r is because it makes it easy to find me. That's the only reason there's no okay. there, I kind of even feel pretentious to use it. But I, you know, back when I was getting back into writing and the internet was a thing, uh, had become a thing. I, uh, I Googled my name, Chris Wiley. I don't know if you've ever done that, Jared, but you, you, you do that. And you discover it. Let half the people in the world have your name. Right. <laughs> so, uh, that's what I discovered. And there was a there's actually an actor in Hollywood a guy named Chris Wiley. And so obviously he takes up like the first four pages I yeah. thought no one will ever find me if I if I just go by my real name. So I, I, uh, I did the CR thing, feeling kind of pretentious, as I said, because you know I don't think of myself in the league with C C S Lewis or J R Tolkien or any of that stuff. It just I, if you did, but, but if you type in C R Wiley, I'm like the I, I I'm just about the only guy you get. So there you go. <laughs> so it's Easy for people to get me. Yeah, and then the podcast. I'm I'm a I'm a a, a co-host on a a podcast called the Theology Pug cast as in the dog hug and uh i uh i'm on that show with a couple of guys one guy's uh tom price who is a systematic and, and teaches at gordon Conwell seminary and then um Glenn sunshine who's an historian and teaches at central connecticut state university as well as uh, being a he's a, he's also a senior fellow fellow at the colson center so three of us have done that uh going on a year now and, and it's been a real surprise to us about you know just how well it's done it, it's got about ten thousand listeners and so we're kind of uh, surprised as anybody <laughs> because our production values are like terrible <laughs> we just we just set up a you know we just sit in a, in a booth in a in a pub <laughs> and we just talk about the theme of the day off the top of our heads and it's that simple and then i send uh you know the file off to my oldest son who does that sort of thing for a living you know take you know he's an audio engineer Nice. And he doesn't really clean it up a whole lot because kind of the, the appeal we've discovered is the rawness of it. Right. You know what I mean? Yep. So, so you know, p- people are used to all these over-polished, uh, super sound effect, all this stuff. At, and we kind of stand up because you can actually hear the waitress, you know, and yeah, people exactly. talking behind us and
0: stuff. Yeah, it took me a little minute uh, to get used to that because I'd start listening. And I'd be like, what in the world's going on? You know, this, this is for real. This isn't a soundtrack here. This is the real pub. And right. uh, so it is unique. I like that. But uh, so you're a mutual. I see over the over your right shoulder there. You're a mutual fan of Ron Swanson, and he's one of the primary motivations. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <Right, right. laughs> he's one of the primary motivations. Right. Of- yeah, yeah, that's a that's a lot of fun. There you go. Yeah, I love it. And uh, so my goal with my mustache has been uh, so <laughs> Ron Swanson. It's been Sam Elliott, and uh, it's been Kurt Russell and Tombstone. So <laughs> I figure if I if I get that's that,
1: good. it's a good. One. One. it's a good one I can see well I'm, I'm
0: you know I can't grow you know I'm 36 now but I can't I can't grow anything on the sides here and so I figured if I can <laughs> if I can grow a mustache I'm just gonna go for the mustache you know
1: yeah yeah uh, play to your
0: strengths there we go um all right well let's kind of go back to the beginning a little bit and just uh you're you're when you were converted when when were you did you grow up in a
1: Christian family uh and then when was it that you were converted well um the Christian family thing no okay it uh, was not um I, su- I suppose you You could say that, you know, my family was nominally Christian in the sense that everybody in the West is, I suppose you could say, in a sense, nominally Christian, because, you know, Christianity has had such a tremendous effect on our culture. Um, And uh, so many of the values people uh, cherish have their origins in the Christian faith, whether they like that or not. But uh, in terms of, you know, the, the, the background of my folks, both were Episcopalians. Okay. And uh, my father was an academic. He taught at University of uh, Buffalo and then at Washington University in St. Louis. And my mother was something of an of an, an uh, sort of an art uh, aficionado person who loved the arts, and uh, so she introduced me to the arts when I was a kid. But mm-hmm. uh, in terms of our uh, you know our home, this was the late '60s, so okay. everybody's experimenting you know um and of course we live in a very bohe- in sort of bohemian neighborhoods with, with, alongside people who were into all kinds of stuff so i grew up in a world with buddhas and beads and incense and all that wow. kind of thing and uh, my folks got into the baha'is they were there for a while my father dabbled in uh unit with you know in sort of unitarianism universalism and kind of but they both ended up but uh, principally my father in scientology okay so i uh so I spent my childhood, you know, from about the age of five to 11 or so, uh, an unwilling participant in L. Ron Hubbard's wow. Church of Scientology.
0: Okay. Wow. Very interesting background.
1: Yeah, so that that was uh, that. And then uh, Scientology is very expensive. I don't know if you've ever heard that. Mm-hmm. And it led to uh, sort of the financial, you know, collapse of our our home. Uh, my, fa- my father uh, left us and uh, my he took us back to Western Pennsylvania where we were from. So we were living in St. Louis at the time and he took us back to Western Pennsylvania where, you know, our family is from both sides and then just kind of left us. My mother kind of zoned out. She was addicted to psychotropic drugs and stuff like that. Hmm. So I was pretty much on my own from the time I was about 11 years old. Uh, I skipped a lot of school and uh, got into all kinds of stuff. Okay. But... Uh, I was uh, befriended by a, a preacher's kid and we became best friends. So he had to go to church. He wasn't a particularly pious kid or anything. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
1: He just had to go to church, you know? So, cause he went to church, I went to church. And it was through that, uh, that part of my life during my teen years that I came to hear the gospel and came to believe it. And so that's how that, how my conversion came about.
0: Okay. Yeah. That's incredibly unique. It's awesome to see God work in that way to save you out of that and you know that uh scientology at first i was thinking mary baker eddie eddie with the christian science and then the scientology to be pulled yeah, out of that praise god it's amazing
1: yeah well i am yeah, I'm, I'm with you and, and and i am grateful and uh, yes uh, christian science is kind of minor league <laughs> yeah compared, <laughs> compared to to scientology the scientology uh, gotcha pretty raw <laughs> yeah. Okay. So then now
0: you're, you're converted. you hear the gospel and then fast forward and it, just explain to us what was that internal. So how many years you've been a pastor now? How many years you've been in, in ministry?
1: Well, I, I, uh, got into ministry in the late eighties. So, okay. uh, I think I was, uh, I was ordained in like ninety ninety two, 92 maybe it was. Yeah. I think it was 92. Okay. But I had been involved with you know youth pastor work and stuff like that from like 1986 or seven. Uh, so I, you know it's been it's been a while.
0: Okay. So how did, how did that come to be? What was that internal external process uh, processing of that call into ministry for you?
1: Well, the internal was a struggle. Uh, mm-hmm. I didn't want to do it. Uh, anybody who volunteers for pastoral ministry. I think is nuts. And uh, <laughs> I think it's something that, you know, it's kind of kind of interesting that in the Bible, you know, everybody who's, uh, you know, all the good guys are reluctant. Right. <laughs> they don't want the job. <laughs> and uh, I, I kind of think it's because you know what's, what's involved, but also, be, you know, a lot of times you have your own plans. And so I had my own plans. I was, uh, you know, uh, a lover of, uh, you know, the arts, particularly I was, you know, I had a dream of being a comic book artist. Right oh, wow. Okay. And uh, so is that so your work? Actually, is that your work over the left, your left shoulder there? Well, that No, that that's a friend of mine named Justin Girard. He's, okay. uh, he's a pretty uh, significant book illustrator and he illustrated a, uh, a cover or did a cover for my first, uh, young adult book. And this is the cover for my second young adult book. Oh, very cool. But I'm actually involved right now in a couple of projects that have yet to be published. One is I'm working on a book on Tom Bombadil that I'll be illustrating, I think. Okay. And then I've got a children's book called Daisy that uh, my literary agent has been sending around to people, and there've been some nibbles. Uh, but when I get uh, that project, uh, you know, lined up and ready to go, then I'll, uh, you know, get serious about, you know, the art. On Very that. cool. But, but yeah, I mean, if people are interested in my stuff, I, I guess maybe the only place I share it is Instagram. Okay. But uh, in terms of uh, in terms of you know my calling, I, I didn't want to be a pastor, I didn't want to be involved in ministry. I wanted to I wanted to to draw. I wanted mm-hmm. to go to New York and you know be in that world, and uh, you know so this would be early seventies, mid seventies, late seventies, and that range is when I was pursuing that. You know more seriously late seventies, early eighties, and so okay. I wrestled with it. I had a sense of uh, I had a sort of that you know conviction uh, that I had been set apart for pastoral ministry, and you know, actually I was at the time thinking more along the lines of missions, okay. and uh, I didn't want to do it. But eventually I relented, and uh, then in terms of external uh, you know things that confirmed the call, I had a lot of positive feedback very early on
0: hmm.
1: in terms of the work I did.
0: Fantastic, that's good stuff. All right, you, you talk a lot about masculinity and uh I, I I'm appreciative of your buddy Doug Wilson and have learned a lot from him and I I admire your willingness to be buddies with him
1: in light of the <laughs> insanity that right. is the internet. And uh so well, I, I you know, let me let me just say something here. If you think Doug is my most controversial friend, you don't know my friends. Okay. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you got, got it. It's like almost everybody I hang out with has got like an enemies list that is like a mile long.
0: So <laughs> That, you means, know, your, so that I, means your enemies list has got to be a mile long at this point. I, I've got my enemies too. Sure, <laughs> sure. So we've had some technical difficulties. I'm going to ask Chris the same question I just asked him. But uh, as I was saying before, I admire your willingness to just talk about gender and sexuality, masculinity and femininity. But uh, why is it, and we're part of the SBC, and what, what I've noticed that, Uh, Is common in our denomination is that there is an embarrassment about uh, gender sexuality about what God has explicitly said to men and women as men and women in the scriptures, and we do a lot of dancing and trying to polish up the scriptures. But what it appears to be in my mind is just an embarrassment. Hear me? I can. And uh, and so, would you? Why? Do you agree with that? And why is it that Christians at large are embarrassed about? Mm complementarian theology?
1: Well I think it boils down to power and I think that the uh, sort of the the understanding that a lot of folks have is that traditional uh, roles and traditional modes of life uh, are seen as retrograde and oppressive and the uh, the reason they believe that is because there's uh, almost no confidence that there are transcendent points of reference for anyone in our world today Mm. and consequently uh, all you have to work with is your desires what you what you you know want to do and how you want to live uh, are the only points of reference people have and because of a kind of you know live and let live or you know golden rule treat others as you want to be treated there's a kind of, a, there's a, kind of a, a need that people feel to uh, sort of honor anything that anybody says about themselves. Mm-hmm. And then you combine that with, um, you know, the, uh, the economy that we live in today, which uh, has, you know, in, in the interest of, you know, economic growth and business growth and so forth, really encourage people to get out of the house and get to the workplace uh, to to make a living. And because you don't get any strokes for being, you know, if we're talking about women, a a woman who's who stays at home to be with her children or to work from the home or anything like that. uh, You know, we have women who, because, you know, it's human nature to, to, to look to, for affirmation and Mm -hmm. so forth. So you have all of these forces at work that, are militating against a traditional, and I think commonsensical, and even even biological basis Mm -hmm. for our lives, uh, lives together as men and women. And so consequently, it it takes not simply courage, certainly takes courage to speak the truth about men and women and what we're made for. But it also takes a lot of hard study, because you're You're not presented with, you know, resources. Uh, Hardly anybody is talking about this stuff. Everybody's Mm -hmm. sort of, of, you know, sort of hoping that no one brings up questions. (laughs) Right. And everybody's hoping that they could just focus on a personal relationship with Jesus and when when it comes to pastoral ministry anyway. And so everything is sort of is turned inward and it's a motive in nature. And there is no connection to creation or to God's. You know purposes for things, um, any of that really. Mm-hmm. So I think it, it. You know the embarrassment. You, that was the the thing you noted. Uh, I think the embarrassment uh, can be boiled down to that. If you're a, a pastor who's planning a church, perhaps in an upscale community or in a college town or something like that, and you want to be liked, you want to be accepted, you want people you know, to listen to you, you know, kind of intuitively that the price that you need to pay for those things is to either downplay or deny biblical teaching on sex and sexes.
0: Absolutely. That's, that's so helpful. You know, the C.S. Lewis quote on courage, you mentioned courage and, and I'll butcher it and then you can correct it after I butcher it here. But he (laughs) said, uh, he said that courage is the virtue that holds all other virtues together at their testing point, their point of testing. At least that's the gist of the, of the quote. And, you know, I, I've seen this in, you know you, we watched the my wife and I sat down and watched the film of uh the Free Speech apocalypse with Doug Wilson at bloomington indiana and and I saw that you also had a central uh, a common welcome in Moscow with your toxic matriarchy <laughs> uh, title of your you know lectures there and what my wife and I noted was courage there's there it requires courage in the face of uh hostility to stand practically. To our creed of inerrancy, to practically live this out, the implications of what we confess. And uh, w- would you explain the environment? And and that's an unusual environment. What was the environment like when you were talking about toxic? That was that the title of the talk, toxic mat- matriarchy.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was, and I think it's uh, still on YouTube. So if people okay. want to watch it, they can. Uh, it was recently published in Touchstone magazine. Uh, the transcript was okay. So. Um, It was actually, you know, this kind of sound weird. I I lived and ministered in Cambridge, Massachusetts for about a decade. I went to Harvard Divinity School, so I knew exactly what I was getting into. Mm, Yeah. (laughs) In fact, these folks were like the minor leagues compared to what I and you know, as their questions, their behavior, all this kind of stuff. It was all. It was actually. I hate to say it because it sounds so so arrogant but it was actually kind of amusing to me. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I kind of felt like I was, you know, like when you're dealing with your your, your toddlers and they're swinging as hard as they can and you pretend to get hit, you know, and that kind of, it was kind of like that. Okay. They were really, they were, they didn't even know how outmatched they were. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) That kind of thing. So when I, when I did the talk, you know, I knew what I was getting into. And I'd also gotten some vibes, you know, sort of messages about what to expect and that kind of thing. The police presence there was great. The folks at the University of Idaho, I thought, were, were really great uh, in terms of the, you know, the administration and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so in terms of the, you know, those folks and the, the what they did to host the event and the sponsoring organization, everything was great. Uh, but I do think um, you just need to get used to not being liked. Yeah, I just good. think that we got a lot of guys in the ministry who really, really need to be liked. Hmm. And if, until you get over that, until you say, you know what, it's not about me being liked. Yeah. You know, uh, if, if you really think that you're going to win the world for Jesus because you're the most likable guy in the room, you're, you're, you're clueless. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> you have no understanding. Uh, you know, when it comes to human nature, uh, this, you know, sin, uh, or even the history of ideas. You know, there, there are a lot of people who have influenced the world in good ways and bad ways who were absolute jerks. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so it has not, nothing to yeah. do with how nice you are, how likable you are. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of it, uh, comes down to that. I think so. Guys just need to get over the niceness need. That's good. That is so good.
0: Yeah, there's not. Uh, there, there, I think there's a massive chasm between kindness and niceness, and uh, and the kindness of God and the kind of thing that marches around itself and parades itself as kindness today and niceties today. That is such a huge thing. The praise of man rather than the praise of God that has to be slayed in pastors. I see it. Just that desire to be liked is it is a unquenchable thirst. It, I mean, it's a drug that just uh, keeps you coming back, and that's got to be slayed for sure. That's a good word. All right. All right. Let's switch gears a bit. I've got a lot of younger listeners and they're just getting their feet wet in ministry, trying to figure out their way maybe they've had an experience just like me where I, I first sat in my church office. And I remember looking around the walls at, I was 24 years old and I was thinking, what in the world am I supposed to be doing? I mean, I knew I was supposed to be studying and caring for people, but I was thinking, what, what on earth? Nobody's telling me what to do. And so for, for guys that are trying to figure out their way uh, they 've just got simple questions like what 's my my schedule supposed to look like this week and I know you wear a lot of hats, so your your schedule may be a little bit unique and, and different but what 's a typical life or typical week in the life of of chris wiley what 's what 's it look like
1: well i I think that 's a good setup uh, particularly the the you know the, the observation you made about different things i 'm doing just so folks know i i i 'm a real estate uh investor. Uh, I've got properties one time I had eighteen tenants and and i had them when i was a pastor okay um and uh I also write uh as you know as you know and i uh you know speak and travel so there there are those things and, uh, then I've got, you know, a wife and kids and then I've got a growing church. I mean, I, my church is a really very healthy church and, and, uh, lots of good things happening. And I've got an associate pastor. I've got a pastoral intern. So I've got staff. So, um, there are a couple of things that are also good to know about my situation before I describe it. Um, I think it's really, uh, key for folks or it's important for folks to know just how healthy my church is um in terms of the maturity of my leadership my you know even my lay leadership um they're very capable Hmm. so because of that uh i don't sort of deal with a lot of minutiae if you know what i mean Mm. i don't do a lot of uh sort of uh looking at the flow chart and making sure everybody's working yeah. Uh, there's a right. lot of stuff that's going on all the time that I get word about through the grapevine even. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. So th- with those things in mind, uh here's what a typical day looks like. Um, it gets I you know in the mor- in the morning. Well, let me let me also say another thing. I meant to say this. Um are you familiar with uh Wilfredo Pareto, the Pareto Principle? I am not. Okay. If I put it this way, you'll probably recognize it. You get eighty percent of your results from twenty percent of your effort. Yes. Okay, so most folks are familiar with that. Now, the thing about it is I've noticed that even when guys learn that, they spend a lot of time on the 80% of the stuff that gets them 20% of the results. Right. Years ago, I decided I'm just going to focus on the 20 That's good. <laughs> yeah. The 20% to get to the 80%. I'm You know, going to really zero in on that and do that stuff as best I can and then uh, let people forgive me <laughs> for... For, this, for the 80% of the stuff that gets 20% of the results that I'm not doing a whole lot. Mm-hmm. So when it comes down to the things that I really focus on, uh, number one is preaching. And second is prayer. You know, you can flip those. But right. both those things are huge. I mean, uh, and then it, my leaders. I spend a lot of time with my leaders. So, for example, this week, you know, I'm a Presbyterian. We have elders. I've got deacons. And so... Uh, you know, once a year, roughly, I, I I take them all out to lunch one-on-one and do the sort of, you know, kind of the connect, reconnect. Right. But I, I'm, I'm very attuned to what's, you know, sort of going on with them, in their personal lives, uh, their work in the church. And I spend a lot of time just on a sort of casual basis as we walk by each other in the hall, that kind of stuff, checking in, making sure everything's good because mm-hmm. so much of the ministry uh, is, you know, sort of work, you know, being conducted through those guys. And then I spend the fourth thing. And I was just, uh, I just had lunch with Brian Doyle uh, here last week. Brian Doyle is the founder of Iron Sharpens Iron. I don't know okay. if you've ever yeah, heard of Yeah, I have. So our, Brian and I were talking about this very thing and he asked me the same question you asked me. And I went through my list and I said, the fourth thing is I, I, I spent a lot of time on my men. In fact, I try to uh, connect with my men one on one, like over a lunch or something like that, at least every uh, two years. And uh, you know, when I'm really on my game, every year. Okay. And so, you know, I'm talking about heads of households. I'm not talking about right. you know anybody just walks through the door. Although I, I I do try to connect with those people, but I invest a lot of time in those guys because again, they're leaders, they're heads of houses, and uh, in many cases. And when they're not, they're young men who are, you know, you know, sitting out upon their journey in life. And and what really influenced me along this line years ago, and this is going to sound just kind of crazy, but I was reading uh, the autobiography of Malcolm X okay. by Alex Haley. And in that book, if I remember correctly, it, at least if, if, if I'm remember if I'm misremembering, Uh, It's been a really good thing to remember wrong. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But if if I remember correctly, this is what uh, Malcolm X said about the black church, because this is a guy who's a Nation of Islam guy, right? Right. He said the problem with the black church, problem with those guys, is he says they focus on the women and children, they lose the men. Hmm. I'm going to focus on the men, and I'll get the women and children too. That's good. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So a lot of times, like, for example, a full-grown black man who maybe has got some, you know, uh, uh, anger is an intimidating dude. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so if you're, you know, so a lot of guys are like, hey, I don't want to get anywhere near that, mm-hmm. you know. But Malcolm X is like, hey, I'm just as mad as you are. <laughs> you're right. <laughs> I'm going to tell you why, you know, why you need to take that anger and, and handle it more appropriately or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, that's just one example, but I, I really have... Focused on on men, and that's probably the sort of the foundational reason why I, that I was interested in masculinity to begin yeah. with. Uh, was that
0: okay? Yeah, so good. Getting those priorities. So eighty percent focus on the twenty percent. Find out the twenty percent that's maximizing your time and effort, and and then focus on that rather than wasting time with the with the eighty. That's a huge takeaway. All right. There's a lot of pastors that burn out or quit. I told you at the beginning before we started recording. That's one of the reasons I started the Shepherd's Crook is because I saw guys falling all around me. I've seen one pastor who's by my uh, my metrics have finished. Which my metrics are if you if you if you get to formal retirement age and you're you still love Jesus and you know you're loved by Jesus, your wife still likes you, your kids respect <laughs> you, and you're right. still making disciples. And there's not been any hidden moral failure. Well, then you've done a good job. Well done. And I know one pastor like that, just one. And that's anecdotal. I realize that. So that can't, can't be the case, you know, through the, through the entire globe or even nationally. But in my experience, it's been like that. So why, why does, why do so many pastors burn out and quit?
1: Well, I think I touched on it a little bit. It has to do with, you know, spending, investing too much in Mm -hmm. that 80% that gets you 20%. Yeah. Right, I think, too, that um, there is a, uh, particularly today, a kind of corporate model that guys follow. Uh, what I mean by that is they think about the church kind of like they think about a business or a corporation. And, you know, it's all about making things happen, mm-hmm. about making people do things. It's about, you know, resorting to, you know, psychological manipulation to get your numbers up so that your reports look better year after year, you know, all that kind of stuff. Right. And so if you have that frame of mind, you, you're pretty much set up to, to burn out. Mm-hmm. Whereas if your your model is more sort of biblical, mm-hmm. not sort of, but is it, <laughs> biblical and right. you're thinking more in terms of sort of the seasons of life, the seasons of the culture, the seasons of the year, and what I'm getting at is sort of this, you know, all this agricultural uh, imagery, and this is what I think our 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 forebears in the faith, our fathers in the faith, 200 years ago, just they knew.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, you know, you 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 preach in season and out of season, but you know when the season is. <laughs> right, right. You know what season you're in. Exactly. You know, you, you, yes. know you know that now it may it may be a disappointment, of course, to be in a in a dry season or in a Season where there's so little fruit, but you just do it. you just keep at it, you understand that it's not really something that's in your control anyway. Mm-hmm. This is not about you oiling the machinery or organizing things better or any of that kind of stuff. In fact, let's think about it this way. you know I've been around long enough to, to, to have seen people who were you know sort of household names that, that people can't even remember. Mm. Here's an example: Robert Schuler. Right. Yeah. Now, I, I don't know if you, you even yeah. remember, Robert. Yeah. The Crystal Cathedral, Hour of Power. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. that's right. Now, w- when I was getting into the ministry, it, back in the day, everybody thought he was like the greatest thing ever. Wow. You know, today, his ministry is bankrupt. The Crystal Cathedral is owned by the Catholic Church. You know, it was purchased uh, by the that diocese in, in Orange County and converted into a Catholic Church. Mm. and. uh a lot of the guys I talk to who are getting into the ministry today, have have no clue who he even is. Right. But he was the Tim Keller of his day. Wow. He he was the Bill Hybels of his day. Now, even Bill Hybels, I I wonder how many people even know who he is. Mm -hmm. Now you would know probably because you're in Illinois, but I mean, back in the nineties, like everybody was talking about Bill Hybels, you know, you know, unchurched Harry, unchurched Sally, all that kind of lingo. (laughs) And, uh, you know, so people were all, all into Heibel's then, but now Heibel's is what he's, you know, been disgraced for mm-hmm. one thing. But does anybody really care what Bill Hybels thinks anymore? Or Rick Warren, you know, right? Or so you know these things. These people they come and they go, and everybody you know is sort of like what's the latest and greatest, and they spend all their time mimicking that person. Mm-hmm. You know, so you know Tim Keller, I mean, he's in my denomination, and I've been to his church a few times. I tell you what, if you wanna ha- if you wanna know how to reach a bunch of single people in New York, then he's great. Uh-huh. <laughs> but he has zero to say to anybody else, as far as I'm concerned. He really does have zero to say to to where I am, to where you are. Uh, literally, if you go there, I mean, my my church youth group is bigger than his church youth group. Wow, and, <laughs> you know, because it really is. You know, if New York and Manhattan, it's a goofy surreal unnatural environment yeah it's a place where people go who leave behind iowa and southern illinois to go and make their name and become famous and then they spend 10 years there and regret it and then go home again 95 percent yeah
0: Yeah. go home again and with a hundred thousand dollars worth of debt (laughs)
1: that's
0: right
1: (laughs) that's Uh, how that's how it is yeah
0: right um yeah, that's uh, that's helpful. I think in in the quick fix and and the the strategies and the numerics that have to be reported month in and month out with church planting, it is it's so easy to get sucked into the next fad, or the next thing, and to not strap yourself into the scriptures and just dig your heels in and say, okay, I'm gonna be as faithfully faithful as I can. What what has God prescribed? Let's be faithful in that, and then we'll see what happens. And you know if If the numbers are growing, praise God if they 're not praise god we 're going to press on, keep doing the same thing and uh that's uh it's a hard thing I think in today's especially you know in my age group it's a hard thing if you 're in your thirties and planting a church or pastoring a church that's wanting to revitalize or whatever term that denomination is putting on on the work that you 're doing there, it can be a pressure that just hangs over your head and i've got to i 've got to get this thing moving i've got to get these gears turning. And uh, I, think it, I think you're right. It can lead to exhaustion. And, uh, okay, so young guys, give, give us some advice. As younger guys, what, what advice do you have? For you? These is a broad question. I realize that. So maybe pick a couple things and throw them our way. What, what advice then? And some of the things you just said are, are really kind of play into what you've, what this question, the answer to this question. But what's some advice you have for young guys and then for older guys? And then I've got one final question for
1: you after that. Um, I think um, this is going to sound really weird. Uh, But I'm I'm a really weird guy, so uh, I guess it kind of comes with the territory. Uh, I think some of the most important things that have been uh, significant in terms of my own ministry over the years have to do outside the uh, sort of the normal sphere of, uh, you know, uh, work that people associate with pastoral ministry. Okay. So let me give you a a few examples. One is I have a background in construction.
0: Okay.
1: I also taught uh, philosophy to undergraduates uh, for about a decade. So I've got a background in uh, the academy, and I've got a background uh, in construction, and I also have a background in, you know, investing. And so those things have proven to be tremendously helpful. At a number of levels for me in ministry. One level it you know is just pretty easy to see, and that's I'm able I'm able to connect with people uh in those worlds. So for example, I've got PhDs and PhD candidates in my church. Okay. And one of the reasons that occurs is because uh people who are pursuing you know a PhD in in a, often in a secular environment. Uh when they come to the church and I connect with them or, or they hear me preach or whatever, they they're, they're picking up on things and saying, Hey, this guy is somebody I can talk to, I can relate to. Mm-hmm. Same thing though is true with my blue collar guys. I got a lot of blue collar guys in my church. I have furniture makers, electricians, you know, uh painters, bulldozer operators, you know, that those guys. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, I'm 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 as happy to hang out with those guys, and I'm comfortable with them and they like being with me, I think. <laughs> they keep inviting me to stuff. Right.
0: There you go. That's
1: a good indicator. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of, a lot of uh, stuff that goes on with that. And then all these guys, you know, are kind of working through, you know, their own issues. So like I was with a guy here not too long ago who works in a major corporation. If I mention the name of it, everybody who listens would know the corporation. He's kind of a, a junior executive and he's looking, he's looking at his situation that, you know, there he's kind of miserable and he's talking about, you know, what do I do with the rest of my life? you know do I want to spend my all my time here and I'm and I'm like, okay, you know, seems to me like maybe getting into, you know, a business of your own would be a good idea. And then I can talk to them about it. You know, this is what I experienced when I was doing stuff, you know, in construction and or mm-hmm. the other things I've done. And so so being able to to connect with guys and say, you know, something more than and this is true to say, this is a good thing to say, you know, the Lord will take care of you, the Lord will guide you or whatever, you know, get into scripture and let the Lord you know and that kind of, all those things are right. Great. But, be, but, be, but being able to, to connect with those guys in a very sort of direct and uh, practical way, you know, it, when it comes to something like, you know, the, the, the risk that you uh, incur when you start a business, mm-hmm. so I've been there I know how that feels. Yeah. <laughs> I did right. that. It helps a lot. Now, at another level, you know, I think that having some stuff that you are competent uh, with outside of the the normal purview of pastoral ministry helps to make you anti-fragile in ministry. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Okay. Um, Sometimes in pastoral ministry, you've got to do something or say something that could lose you your job.
0: Mm, Yeah, that's true.
1: It's just the way it is. And. Uh, doesn't necessarily mean that your church is a terrible church or anything like that. It's just sometimes you you for ex, just say, for example, let's say you need to to do something that a lot of people won't understand and you can't explain mm-hmm. just because of the nature of the beast. I mean, you've got to keep confidences, you know, you've got to uh, uh, act. You just can't pretend anymore that this isn't a problem, you know, but at the same time, you can't explain, you know, and then you, and you do something and then people are outraged. And the next thing you know, you know, you're like, what am I going to do with the mortgage? Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or the kids I need to feed or whatever. So you, if you have something that you can say, hey, I can always do this. The Apostle Paul, I can always make tents. Mm-hmm. Peter, I can always fish. <laughs> yeah. right. There's always something to fall back on. Then I think it gives you a stiffer spine to mm-hmm. say, "This is the way it's going to be, folks." I know you can't understand. I know you don't like it. Gotta trust me on this one. I don't mm-hmm. do this for you very often, but this is one of those situations where it's just, it's just the way it is. Yeah, and that's just one example. Yeah, that's good. Um, but so I think those things of being able to relate to other people but also being able to, to, to know in the back of your mind, my kids aren't going to starve. I'm not going to lose my house. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. So, for example, in my case, um, I, because I've got a background in real estate and I still own multifamilies, and because I've got friends in that world and I've got a background in construction, I have a, an, a, 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 an offer on the table that I can take anytime I want hmm. to go and uh, build houses yeah. with a major developer in our area. So I know, hey, I know you can be kind of fun. Yeah. <laughs> I can <could, laughs> <Change I pace. laughs> yeah. enjoy that. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> That's good. So anyway,
0: it's great, it's great. It's great to have that in the back of your mind. Yeah, that's good. So now for older guys, they're in the last decade of formal ministry, let's say, before they're about to retire. Let's say it's just retiring at 65. What do you got, got for that 64-year-old as he's kind of <laughs> looking at, uh, well, what's next? Uh, what, what's, what's that guy? What advice do you have for that, for that guy?
1: Well, I'm kind of in that mode myself. Okay. <laughs> I'm gonna be uh I'm I'm 57, I'm gonna be 58 this year. My kids are all grown. Uh, you know, my church is is in a good spot. I'm I'm I've got I'm blessed in the sense that you know my church gives me uh ten weeks a year to travel and speak. Um so I'm I'm in a mode where I'm thinking about that next phase of life. And so there are different things that I'm engaged with, but most of it, most of the stuff I'm engaged with are you know, the things that I'm hopeful will be a blessing to the younger guys.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, not just uh, you know, in my church or you know, who uh you know I write for, but even guys in, in the ministry. So, you know, I think a lot about those guys. I think about my associate pastor, yeah. I think a lot about my my pastoral intern. Uh, but I also think about you know, other guys who are who are younger guys. I, I get a you know, I would say I must get at least one or two calls, texts, emails a day now from young guys in the ministry. Well it's kind of I'm I'm in that phase of life. Okay. Yeah, that's great.
0: Use using those opportunities and running with them. That's good stuff. All right. Well I'm gonna set you up for just thanking God for his grace. Why Chris Wiley do you love Jesus so much?
1: Well he he delivered me from sin and delivered me from despair. Um, you know, I don't know if I could adequately explain what life was like for me during my teen years. I mean, it was, I was in uh, a foster home. I was in, you know, I was a ward of the state uh, and, you know, I didn't have um, many prospects in terms of, you know, connections or anything. And, And it was through the Lord's, uh, you know, work in my life and through his church that my, my, you know, soul obviously, you know, uh, was transformed and I was redeemed, but also just even my life. I mean, I owe the Lord everything. Uh, I owed him everything beforehand, of course, you know, just by being a creature, but, uh, by being redeemed, um, I came into the awareness (laughs) of my debt, (laughs) but also I was given, uh, the, you know, the, the great consolation that, uh, you know, he cares for me and has Mm. provided for me and I have an inheritance, uh, in this with the saints. So I owe him everything. That's good. Amen. Well, this has been a lot of fun. I really
0: appreciate you coming on the show and uh, everybody listening. I hope you enjoyed it, but Chris, thanks for coming on,
1: man.